doubt. Doubt. I want to talk about doubt this morning. Because it's a scary thing to doubt. Doubt your own salvation. To wonder if your faith is real. To question if you really have eternal life or not. And in one sense, seasons of doubt in our life are inevitable. We are fallen people with fallen bodies in a fallen world. We still struggle and battle with sin. It's just inevitable times in our life where we wonder if we are really saved. Those times are just inevitable. And I don't mean the kinds of doubts that come from athe- arguments from atheists, although those, those arguments, although those kinds of doubts could be included, but rather I mean the kinds of doubts that come when we begin to see and understand just how wretched our hearts really are. Maybe you've had those times. Maybe, maybe you're in one of those times even as we speak. We know that doubts can come for any number of reasons. Maybe it's a season where a particular sin has the upper hand in your life. A season where we're not in the word or prayer as much as we should be and God begins to feel distant. Maybe the fog of depression rolls in and hides God's face from us. And we're not sure whether we actually love God anymore and to be totally honest, we're not entirely sure if he loves us anymore either. We have these moments when our faith feels fragile and we're just hanging by a thread. Have you ever been there? I'm talking about the kind of doubt and suicidal agony that the great John Bunyan himself experienced. You know who that is? I'll tell you. And to set the stage for the Apostle John and what he has to say about doubt and and wrestling with assurance, let me tell you this man's story very briefly. John Bunyan was a pastor. And one of the greatest pastors who ever lived, by the way. You probably know him best by his book that he wrote, The Pilgrim's Progress, which is the most widely read book outside of the Bible, by the way. But he was a pastor in England in the 1600s, and although he had very little formal education, he was one of the most powerful and elegant preachers in the entire country, maybe even in the history of the church. People would come from all over England, scholars, Professors would come to to hear this man preach who before that did odd jobs for a living, fixing pots and pans and kettles, and now he's a preacher of God's word. And they came from all over the country to hear this man preach with power and eloquence and zeal. And yet before he was a pastor, beginning in his teens, for years and years, he struggled trembled and fidgeted in his soul with whether he was actually a believer or not. I mean, eventually he settled the issue. But the years leading up to that moment, he was like a car tumbling down the freeway without a seatbelt on. In agony, almost suicidal. He would have seasons, seasons where he felt assured, certain of God's love. And then the slightest sin or temptation would plummet him in a dungeon a dark dungeon choking on the, on the smog and the smoke of doubt and fear. 
One episode, having recently come out of a bout of doubt, he responds, he says this while reading about God's love in Romans 8.38. This, this is a high moment. This is a good moment. He says, now my heart was filled full of comfort and love. And I could believe that my sins were forgiven. Yea, I was so taken with the love and mercy of God that I remember that I could not tell how to contain it till I got home. I thought I could have spoken of his love and mercy to me, even to the crows which sat in the plowed lands before me had they been capable of understanding me. Wherefore, I said in my soul with much gladness, had I here pen and ink, I would write this down before I go any further, for surely I will not forget this moment 40 years hence. Now that's what we want. We want those moments of joy, just exulting in the love and mercy of God. I won't forget this for 40 years. He goes on. But alas, Within less than 40 days, I began to question all, which made me doubt all the more. Another time after being tempted with some sin, which he doesn't name, just, just tempted, he says, down I fell as a bird that is shot from the top of a tree into great guilt and fearful despair. Thus, getting out of my bed, I went moping into the field. But God knows, with as heavy a heart as mortal man, I think could bear. Where for the space of two hours, I was like a man bereft of life and is now past all recovery and bound over to eternal punishment. So here he is, just a few weeks, months before this, thrilled with delight at the love and mercy of God. And now here he is, thinking that at any moment he was going to die and go to hell forever. Another time. But one morning, when I was again at prayer and trembling under the fear of hell, and that no word of God could help me, that piece of a sentence darted in upon me, my grace is sufficient for you. At this, methought that I felt some strength, as if there might be hope. By these words, I was sustained, yet not without seeding, exceeding conflicts for the space of seven or eight weeks. My peace would be in and out, sometimes 20 times a day. Comfort now and trouble presently. Peace now and before I could scarcely walk a quarter of a mile, be filled with as much fear and guilt as a heart could possibly hold. Doubt. I want to talk about doubt. Because you see, it's that kind of agony. As we do battle with doubt and wrestle with assurance, it's that kind of issue that drives John to say what he does in our text this morning. Because you know John's agenda in this letter. He, he makes that perfectly clear in chapter 5, verse 13. He says, these things I have written to you, that you who believe in the Son of God would know that you have eternal life. You have it. It's yours. It's certain. It's paid for. It's guaranteed. And by the way, here's all the evidence in your life of what it looks like when you have eternal life. And then you know what John does throughout the letter. He gives us a series of 
criteria, clear, concrete, unmistakable criteria to help you gauge if your salvation is authentic or if it is counterfeit. Things like truth and obedience and love. If you believe the truth, you obey his word, and you love other people, those are the signs that your faith is not a hoax, but is authentic and real. And yet, and yet, the, the apostle is very, very aware that in his church, there could be any number of John Bunyans fidgeting in their souls, trembling in their souls, wondering, how could it be that I could struggle with that or desire that or give in to that and my faith be authentic? He knows there's people in any church, any number of people who overanalyze every motive, who are too introspective. They missed they miss the forest of grace in their lives because they fixate too deeply on the trees of their own failures. And as a result, they fail to see the legitimate work of grace that Christ is doing in their lives. He knows that. He knows that. And so with the steady hand of a surgeon and the bedside manner of a pediatrician, he carefully carves out a series of insights that help us peer into our own souls and boldly deal with doubt and wrestle with assurance and in the end place our hope not in our performance but in the redemptive achievements of Jesus Christ. Here we go. This morning I want you to see from our text three levels. I think my notes say two. There are three. You get a bonus one. You're welcome. Three levels of assurance. Three levels of assurance that help us deal with doubt and tremble with joy. Three levels of assurance that help us deal with doubt and tremble with joy. And just so you know, this is widely agreed upon by most scholars to be the toughest text in the entirety of 1 John. And yet, we will receive much help from it. So the first level, the first level of assurance is this. Number one, the foundation of assurance the foundation of our assurance, which is God is greater than our hearts. God is greater than our hearts. Because you know, you know where John has been, don't you? You know what he's been up to in chapter 3, and what he's been up to is he has devoted this entire chapter to helping his people discern the difference between children of God, born again, and children of the devil, dead in sin. Because there is a difference. They love different things. They live different lives. They prize and pursue different priorities in their lives. And the reason why they do is because of the soul awakening miracle of being born again. If anyone is in Christ, Paul says, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. You understand when God removed the heart of stone and he gave us a heart of flesh, what that did is that changed our nature. That, that freed us from sin. 
that renovated our very desires to be, you understand, to be born of God is not wishing we could do the sins we love while keeping the commands that we actually hate. That's not what this is. No, to be born again is the installation of a new heart with new desires, new cravings, new joys, new longings. That's what it means to be born again. A transformed life. The problem is we still sin every single day probably every single hour and what that has the potential do, to do is like John Bunyan wreak havoc in our souls and make us wonder do I, do I actually know the Lord do I actually have authentic faith how could I want that? How could I give in to that? How could I do that? How could I think that? And actually have assurance that my salvation is real. And our hearts become our own accuser. That ever happened to you? And you become hypersensitive, overly introspective. We overexamine every motive down to the root and we become paralyzed by despair. Have you ever been there? John knows there's bound to be someone like that in his church, and so notice what he says in verses 19 and 20. Very carefully worded criteria to help us examine if our salvation is authentic. Notice what he says. And by this, we will know that we are from the truth, and we will assure our hearts before him in whatever our heart condemns us, because God is greater than our heart and knows all things. See that? By this we will know that we are from the truth. Meaning what? What does it mean to be from the truth? It means that we're a believer. That we're actually saved. To be from the truth is just another way of saying that we are saved and rescued by the truth, by the gospel. We're in Christ. We are born again. We have eternal life. But notice, notice what John says is the inevitable result and outcome effect of having that assurance or of having, uh, knowing that we're from the truth. Look what he says. By this we know that we are from the truth and as a result, we shall assure or reassure our hearts before him. You see, that's the issue for John. Assurance reassurance and absolute confidence as if before the very throne of God itself that we have eternal life. That's what the phrase before him means. That we, have, that we would have such confidence of our salvation that if the throne of God were in this very room, we would know we have every right to be there because of Christ. That God would point you out in front of a billion angels and say, you belong to me. That's the kind of assurance that John is talking about. And John says there is a way to know that you have it. And we have to be absolutely clear here. The Bible will never, ever, ever give assurance to people who shouldn't have it. It won't do that. Just because you claim Christ doesn't mean you have Christ. Just because you had a moment once or you prayed a prayer, 
or you go to church is no guarantee that you actually have eternal life. You see, there is a kind of imitation faith that believes in Christ for all the wrong, selfish reasons, and for that reason, they were never born again. But John is saying there is a way, there is a way for true believers to know and be assured as if before the very face of God that their salvation is authentic and real. And you see, here's where John becomes very helpful to us. You see, verses 19 and 20 are actually all one sentence. And in verse 20 is a very cleverly articulated insight designed to comfort the John Bunyans of the world who fidget and squirm in their souls. Let's here, John finishes sentence, starting in verse 19. By this, we will know that we are from the truth and thereby assure our heart before him, here it is, in whatever our heart condemns us. Did you hear it? We can have assurance of salvation even when our own heart condemns us. Even when our conscience accuses us. You see, John is portraying a very real scenario in people's lives when people doubt their own salvation, when people become, when their heart becomes their own prosecuting attorney. Have you ever been there? Again, maybe a season where a particular sin has the upper hand. A season of life where we are drifting just a little bit. And we're not in the word and prayer as much as we should be. God begins to feel distant. The fog of depression rolls in on your life and hides the face of God. Maybe some sin in your past for which you still feel kind of guilty. And like a bolt of lightning, our heart pierces us with accusations. And all of a sudden, we begin to doubt John doesn't name the cause of the doubt. There could be endless, complicated reasons that bring about the doubt. Our hearts are very complex, sophisticated, twisted machines. And John says, no matter why it is our heart condemns us, if you belong to Jesus Christ, there is a way to know that you have eternal life. Which begs the question, how, John? How do we know that? How can we know that if our own heart condemns and accuses us and our own conscience calls our salvation into question? How do we know that our salvation is authentic, that we're not deceiving ourselves, that we're not playing a game? And two answers John provides. One is internal and evidential. The other is external and theological. Internal, evidential, and external and theological. Let's begin with the internal and evidential. In other words, there are internal, concrete evidences that you should see in your life if you are, in fact, born again. Because look again very carefully at verse 19. There's a crucial detail there that, that reveals what John is talking about. By this, we will know that we are from the truth. And we will assure our hearts before him in whatever our heart condemns us. Do you see that? By this, we will know that we are real and not a counterfeit. The question is, what is the this? What is the this to which John is, refers? 
Because whatever the this is, is the internal evidence that we should see in our lives if our salvation is not a hoax, but is authentic. And the this is what John just described in verses 11 through 18. And what he just described in verses 11 through 18 is love. Love is the evidence. In other words, I think John is using what he just said in the passage he just wrote as the criteria by which we gauge if our salvation is authentic or if it is counterfeit. I think John wants us to go back to verses like verse 16 and ask ourselves, do do you believe that love is when Jesus Christ laid down his life for us? Yes, I do, John. Okay. And do you believe that his death in our place is the greatest act of love in history? Yes, I believe that. Okay, then do you also believe, verse 18, that the bare minimum calling on your life is to love one another in deed and in truth? Do you believe that? Yes, I believe that. Okay. Then the question is, do you see any of that in your life? I think John wants us to ask, do you see any kind of impulse in your life to extend the love of God to other people? Is there anything at all, just anything, look for anything at all in your lives that care for the spiritual growth of other people? Is there anything in you at all, I think John would ask, that desires that you, that people in your church would treasure Christ more today, more than the day they did before? Because that is the essence of love. Those are the kind of questions I think John wants to ask. That is the this. Because see, John's whole point here is one of the confirming evidences, should I say, the bare minimum evidence that you are from the truth is love and affection for other people, and in particular, love and affection for the people in your church. That's the this that reassures our hearts. So the question is, can you see, can you see the bare minimum evidence evidence in your life that you are from the truth? Can you see it? Can you see even small flickers of love in your heart for the souls and needs of other people? Do you see any attempts at all to just get outside of yourself and find out how other people are really actually doing? The question is, do you feel any weight or gravity, or ownership over the spiritual growth of other people. That's what the Bible means by love. And and my question is, why? Why? Why does John single out love as the bare minimum evidence that confirms if your faith is real? Why does he do that? Out of all the number of legitimate evidences to which John could point to show that our salvation is real, why does he single out love in particular? And the reason he does is because true biblical love is just so undeniably supernatural. You can't fake it. You would think you could, but you can't. At least not for very long. Why? Because true biblical love, it's just too open with your own life. It's too involved in the lives of others. 
It's too proactive. It's too intentional. It's too affectionate. It's too sacrificial to be faked or forged, or at least faked or forged for very long. So the nature of what true love is, is so supernatural that it is the bare minimum evidence that your salvation is real. Which means, which means, if you don't see love, if you don't see love for people in your local church, you should be very, very concerned. If you can see what verse 17 describes as closing your bowels, that's what the Greek says, closing your bowels to the needs of other people. In other words, if you can see need ignoring, self-exalting, risk avoiding, record-keeping, grudge-holding, self-protecting, church-neglecting habits that never move beyond surface-level superficiality, you should be intensely concerned about the state of your soul. That's internal and evidential. Let's look at the external and the theological. The external and the theological proof that you are from the truth. And here's where John shows off his ability to, to thread a very delicate needle here. See, John knows, he knows that there are people in his church, in these churches to whom he's writing, who wrestle and fidget and tremble. They overanalyze every motive down to the root. They, 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 again, it doesn't, you don't have to look too hard to find something sinister in your hearts. And these people, that's all they can see. They assume, they're the kind of people that assume too quickly that the mere presence of temptation is the same as sin, which it's totally not. But they don't know how to differentiate between the two. And so although they love Christ and their faith is real, they constantly teeter on the brink of despair. And so for those kind of people, John has a very soothing balm for the soul. Look at the end of verse 20. He says, by this we will know that we are from the truth and thereby assure our hearts before him in whatever our heart condemns us, here it is, because God is greater than our heart and he knows all things. Did you hear it? Did you hear what John used to comfort the trembling soul? If you're truly saved, if you're truly saved, you should see concrete evidence of that. And bare minimum, it should be love for other people. But you know, you know that some people fixate so obsessively on their own failures that they fail to see the legitimate work that God is doing in their lives. And so for those people, what does John provide? What, what comfort does he give them? The comfort is, God knows your heart better than you do. The comfort is God can see the tangled complexities of the soul better than you can. God can see, he can see the glowing embers of your faith beneath the black ashes of sin and struggle even when you cannot. The point is our own hearts are not even necessarily the best barometer to know what's even going on inside them. Sometimes we're too severe. Sometimes we're too lenient. 
Sometimes we lash ourselves on the back. Sometimes we pat ourselves on the back. And the point here is that our hearts are not always the best barometer. Our hearts are not really trustworthy instruments always to make those kinds of calls. It's kind of like the movie I saw years and years ago about a nuclear submarine, the nuclear reactor on the sub. And there was this gauge on the reactor. I don't know anything about this kind of stuff. I'm just making the best of it I can here. There's a gauge on the reactor off by just a few degrees, just a few degrees. And one of the guys on the ship didn't know it, and he turned up a dial too high, and the reactor began to overheat, and pretty soon there was a nuclear meltdown, and everybody on the submarine died. Go check it out. Great movie. Just kidding. <laughs> the, the point is, our hearts are like that gauge. They're just off at times. Because of that, we overcompensate. And it results in a meltdown of fear and unnecessary shame over sins that Christ has already paid for. He's already forgiven you for those. And John is saying, God is greater than the gauge of our own hearts. He knows all things in the universe including what's going on in your very own soul. It's not that God minimizes or disregards our failures. He doesn't, by no means. He knows them better than you, and he's more grieved by them than you are. But being God, he perfectly knows and sees the complexities of faith in the soul of a saint who struggles. In other words, John, do you see what John is calling you to do? He is calling the trembling saint Hang on to the God who knows all things. To stop looking at mystical feelings or some vague peace in your heart or some date on a calendar when you ask Jesus into your heart and instead, instead of that, to entrust your soul right now, today, in real time to the gracious, all-seeing vision of God who will bring you safely into His glorious kingdom in other words, the most important question to ask when it comes to your own assurance is not, did I make a profession of faith in 1999? No, it is, am I holding on for dear life to Christ by faith, even at this moment? That's the question. And that's the foundation of our assurance. God is greater than our hearts, which brings us to the second level. A second level of assurance, which is, number two, boldness and answered prayer. Boldness and answered prayer. And here now John turns and he addresses a different group of people. He turns from the struggling, trembling, fidgety souls who need God's comfort and assurance to a group of people, get this, who have assurance... And they wonder if they should, if they should have assurance. And his goal for them is not to make them doubt, but to look for the inevitable fruit and evidence that should accompany such confidence and assurance. Look what he says in verses 21 and 22. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have boldness with God. 
And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and we do the things that are well-pleasing in his sight. So you see the crowd that he's talking to, right? People whose hearts are not condemning them. People whose consciences are not accusing them. People who have a, a, a real, strong measure of assurance and boldness that their salvation is authentic and real. Those are the people to whom he's talking. And again, he, he's not talking about some sort of like irrational assurance where people uh, uh, feel assured when they should not. He's, talking about, he's not talking about people who love their sin or loiter in sin or live in sin, but they don't really feel bad about it. So I guess their salvation is authentic. No, no, that's not who he's talking about. Those people should be doubting their faith. They should be questioning their salvation. He doesn't mean those people. No, he is talking about true, authentic believers in Christ, which is why he calls them, notice at the beginning of verse 21, agapetoi, beloved. He's talking to believers. With all their flaws, with all their struggles notwithstanding, He's talking about real people who are rightly experiencing a measure of assurance and confidence that their salvation is real. But you feel the tension, don't you? He, he, he all but implied in verse 20 that our hearts are not really a great gauge always to know. I mean, we can deceive ourselves. We can give ourselves too much room, too much leeway. We can be too lenient on ourselves. I mean, the culture's advice of trust in your heart is really stupid advice. And we know that, and they know that. So the, the wrestle is, John, uh, since our hearts don't always give us the most accurate reading, and I don't, I'm not doubting my salvation right now, should I be? Should I be doubting? I mean, I mean, my conscience isn't condemning me. I feel assured that my salvation is real. How do I know, John, that I'm not deceiving myself? And like a, with the skill of a sculptor, John gives us two evidences, two kinds of evidence to help us see that our salvation is reasonable, to see if it is reasonable or if it is delusional. There is internal evidence and there is external evidence. There is subjective and there is objective. Let's look at the subjective and internal. Subjective and internal, verse 21. He says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have, get this now, boldness with God. Do you hear that? Boldness. Boldness with God. If your conscience doesn't condemn you, in other words, you're not, you're not living a double life. You're not playing a game. You don't, you're not hiding any secret sin. You're fighting the good fight. It's a battle. It's hard. It's difficult. But you're hanging on to Christ by faith. John says, you have boldness with God. Meaning what? Meaning, you don't gotta knock first. Meaning, approaching God in Christ is not like going up into space or trying to meet the president. You don't have to wear a helmet and a Kevlar suit. You don't need to fearfully tiptoe up to God as if his presence is not a place where you perfectly belong because in Christ you perfectly belong and deserve to be there in Christ. We can approach God, he is saying, and rightly speak to him as if we had received salvation, having perfect assurance that we have every right to address him on those terms. 
I mean, you can see the issue that John is raising here. John, what John is describing here, in other words, is the power of a conscience made clean. That's what he's after. The power of a conscience made clean. He's talking about a person with nothing hidden, nothing to hide. He means the kind of security with the living God that only can come when you're not living a double life. Because yes, you still sin. Yes, you still struggle. Yes, I still sin. Yes, I still struggle. No, we shouldn't do that. Yes, the battle with the flesh still rages within us. Get this now. But that does not disqualify you from having real bona fide assurance with God. Rather, the issue here that should make us wonder and question is if we have habits of sin that we knowingly tolerate and secretly justify. That would be the issue. So John's point is when you examine your life with all your struggles, with all your failures, notwithstanding, because they exist, and you see a sin-confessing, Christ-trusting, Scripture-reading, temptation-fighting faith that clings to Christ in your private moments when no one is watching, then you can have assurance that the treasure of salvation rightly belongs to you. The question is, do you have that? Do you have the power of a conscience made clean. I'm not asking if you're sinless. I'm not asking if you never do battle with sin, with lust or pride or greed. I'm not asking that. I'm not asking if you have to repent all the time for sinful things that you say or think or do because you should be doing that. That is, in fact, fantastic assurance if you see that in your life. Rather, I'm asking, are you living a double life? Are you playing a game? Is your faith a performance? I'm asking if who you are when you get in your car and you go home and you shut the door and you draw the blinds, I'm asking in those moments when no one can see you, I'm asking you, are you hanging on to Jesus Christ? I'm asking you if the sins that you commit in secret that nobody sees break your heart and send you to the throne of grace. Because those kinds of people, they should have a clean conscience and great boldness with God. So that's Subjective, internal. Subjective and internal. Second, the objective and external evidence. Objective, external evidence. In other words, the melody of your internal boldness should be matched by the harmony of external evidence. In other words, if you have a clean conscience and you really should have a clean conscience, there should be inevitably the kind of corresponding, confirming external evidences that would match up with a clean conscience. In other words, a changed life, something different about your life. That's exactly what John provides. Look at the external evidence that he provides. Verse 22. Look what he says. It's very strange. 
Beloved, if, if our heart does not condemn us, we have boldness with God. Here it is. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and we do what is well-pleasing in His sight. <laughs> That's a baffling statement, at least at first. And the more you think about it, the more sense it begins to make. Because you know, you know, one of, the, one of the number one rules of parenting is that you never reward bad behavior, right? You don't reward disobedience. There's this parental instinct where we know that if our kids resist our authority and defy our commands and reject us and resist us, that that's not the time to then lavish them with blessings and increase their privileges, Right? If they don't eat the carrots, they don't get the cake. Agreed? But should they obey? Should they honor our authority? Should they give some sort of indication that they care about what comes out of mom and dad's mouth and that that matters and that means something and, and that they want to obey us and honor our authority? Well, that changes things. That changes things. We become favorably inclined as parents to grant them what they ask. That's a crude way of summarizing what John just said. Look what he says. Look at his shocking language. What does John say is the visible evidence in our lives that we really have salvation? What does he say is the evidence? Verse 22. Whatever we ask, we receive from him. In other words, God gives us whatever we want. That's the evidence. God, there should be evidence in your life that God gives you whatever you ask, which just sounds absolutely bonkers, doesn't it? I mean, he's talking about prayer here. And God giving you whatever you ask in prayer is the evidence that you have eternal life. That's crazy because we know that's not true. God doesn't give us whatever we ask. He never has, and he never will. Unless, unless the things you asked for were the things he wanted to give us anyway. Which is exactly what he means at the end of verse 22. Look what he says. He, he, clarifies, by what he, he clarifies what he means. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have boldness with God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him. Why? Because, because we keep His commandments and we do what is well-pleasing in His sight. Do you see the correlation between answered prayer and obedience? Because we keep the Father's commands and we do what pleases Him, for that reason, God is favorably inclined to give us whatever we ask in prayer. That's what he just said. But you know there's a catch, don't you? You see, the only things that we ask for, or the only things that we should ask for, are the things we need to keep his commands. The only things for which we pray, or should pray, are the very things we need to make him please. That would be the qualification. I, th I think that's what John is doing there with that final clause. Because we keep his commandments, he's showing that the things we ask for, the things we desire, the things that we plead for are the very things we need to obey him and please him. Therefore, John says, the proof, get this now, the proof 
and evidence that our faith is real is the power to be holy in answer to prayer. I think that's what he's saying. That the external verification in our lives that our salvation is authentic is not only that we pray, but that we see God's answers to our prayers and that the things for which we pray are the things that we desire to please and delight the heart of God. That's evidence. That's tangible. That's measurable. That's definable. That's noticeable. You can see that. The question is, do you see that in your life? Do you see any of that in your life? Can you see the hand of the living God in your life? Not flawless, not perfect, not sinless, but ask yourself three questions. Ask yourself three questions. Do I pray? Do I obey? Does God answer my prayers in a tangible way? Those are the questions. Do I pray? Do I obey? Does God answer my prayers in a tangible way? You answer those. You determine if your salvation is reasonable or if it is delusional. Because if you don't pray and you don't obey and you don't see God at work in a tangible way, now might be the perfect time to question if you've ever actually yielded your life to King Jesus. If you really have eternal life. And I say that carefully. I say that carefully because the last thing I want to do is make you unnecessarily fearful or introspective. I mean, you don't have to look very hard or long to find something sinister. I'm not asking you to dig. I'm just saying, look at the habits and patterns of your life. And yet, at the same time, John did write this letter to make us wrestle, didn't he? To make us struggle a little bit. To make us sweat just a tad with where we are actually at with Jesus Christ. So here's the question. If you're, if you're wrestling with the fact that maybe your salvation has not, maybe, maybe your faith hasn't been real. Maybe it's beginning to dawn on you this whole time you've had a cultural Christianity that's never actually yielded to Jesus Christ. What do you do? What are you supposed to do now? If you're beginning to get on the brink of the cusp of thinking, uh, I may not be the real thing, what are you then supposed to do? I'll tell you what you do. You go back to the fundamentals and define what it means to be a Christian, which is exactly what John does in the third level of assurance. A third level of assurance. Number three, the fundamentals of assurance. The fundamentals of assurance, which are faith, Love and the power of the Spirit. Faith, love, and the power of the Spirit. In other words, what John does here in this final level is he gives us the elevator speech of the Christian life. You know, you know what an elevator speech is? It's the time you have to say something before you reach your floor. So because you only, you only have a really small amount of time, you have to be condensed, you have to be brief, you have to be very basic. So here's the question for you. What would you say? As the elevator doors are closing, how would you summarize and define what it looks like to be a Christian? In 20 seconds or less, how would you define the basic essentials of what it means to be a Christian? 
John does that very thing in verses 23 and 24. Look at the text. And this is his commandment, that we should believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and we should love one another even as he gave to us a commandment. And the one who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us because of the Spirit who he gave to us. 18.7 seconds. I timed myself. There it is. There it is. Now, again, I don't know if you can tell what John just did there, but what he did is he just, to, to give his people assurance and clear the fog caused by these con men, false teachers that moved in and clouded things with their false teachings, he boiled the entirety of the Christian life down to its most pure and refined essentials. It's one of the most condensed summaries of the Christian life in the entirety of the Bible. He just gave us, get this now, he just gave us what we must believe, how we must live, and how to interpret what we see. Here's what I mean. Look at, look at number one. I've, I've got the, if you've got your notes, you can see this on there under the third point. What we must believe. What we must believe. Look at verse 24. And this is his commandment. You want to know what God commands? You want to know God's will? Here it is. That we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and we love one another even as he gave a commandment to us. See what he does? To, to give us assurance, we need to know what God demands. And what does God demand? Notice that it's commandment singular, but it has two parts. Part one, to believe in the name of his son. That's what God demands. That, that's what God calls the entire human race to do. To believe in the name of his son. And you knew that. You've always known that. You've heard that so many times in your life. And yet the question is, what does it mean to believe in Christ? As the elevator door is closing, how would you describe what that means? You want to know what faith in Christ is? Faith is thirst. Faith is submission. Faith is a thirsty submission to Jesus Christ. But did you notice what the text said about him? We should believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. Did you hear the theology there? Because there was tons. He is the son. You were to believe that he is the son. The son of God. God the son. The second person of the Trinity. But you were to believe that he is Jesus. Yeshua in Hebrew. It literally means Yahweh saves. Yahweh is salvation. This is God. This is Yahweh. Salvation alone comes from Him. You were to believe that He is the Christ. Mashiach in Hebrew. Messiah. The great King and Redeemer who will return again and build His kingdom and bring paradise back to earth. That is what you believe when you have faith in Jesus Christ. God, the Son, sent by the Father to save the souls of men. He is Lord and God and King and Savior and treasure. But notice part two of God's command, not only to believe in Christ. What does he say? He say not only to believe in Christ, but what? To love one another. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? Love is so central to the Christian life, he combines faith and love 
together as almost inseparable. Why does he do that? Because he wants us to know that getting saved, you enter into a life lived in love for other people. That's what that means. That, that, that the evidence of authentic faith is a life of love lived for other people. Do you believe in Christ? Yes, I do. Well, then you should see love for other people. And number two, John not only gives us what we must believe, he tells us how we're supposed to live. As the elevator doors are closing, how would you explain to people what it looks like to live as a Christian? What would you say? You only have a few seconds left. What are you going to say? That's exactly what John does. Look at verse 24. God's command is to believe in his son, to love other people. Yet after we do that, how are we supposed to live? He says, and the one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. Do you see that? God's word. God's commandments are the gravitational center of the Christian life. Do you understand authentic Christianity is a word-centered faith? There's, there's no discussion about authentic Christianity apart from the sacred text of Holy Scripture. You see, the objective, verifiable way to evaluate authentic salvation is not necessarily our feelings or emotions or even necessarily our experiences but our relationship to Holy Scripture. You understand, one cannot live in casual disregard of the word of Christ and have any assurance that their salvation is authentic. It's exactly the opposite. So authentic, genuine faith reveals itself in highly imperfect but ever-increasing obedience to the commands of Christ. Finally, number three. So basic and fundamental to the Christian life is how to interpret what we see God doing in our lives. How to interpret what we see. In other words, should we believe in Christ? Should we love one another? Should we obey the commands of Christ? What conclusion should we come to? If we see those kinds of things, what conclusion should we come to? That we're awesome? That we're really good people? That we have the power in and of ourselves to do those kinds of things? No, no, it is exactly the opposite. Look at the end of verse 24. And by this right here, we know that Christ abides in us. Here it is. Because of the Spirit which He gave to us. Do you see it? The proof that Christ is in us. And by the way, did you notice the Trinitarian theology? The Father commands that we believe in His Son and obey His Word. And when we see that in our lives, that's evidence of the Spirit. That's interesting. But the proof that Christ is in us, that the reason we believe, the reason we see love in our lives, the reason we obey the Word of Christ is not owing to anything inherent in us, as if we should get the credit. Rather, it is evidence of the Spirit who he gave to us. Do you see what he's doing there? Our faith, our love, our obedience to the commands of Christ is evidence of the supernatural work of the Spirit in our lives, and it should be interpreted as such. Because that's what the Spirit does. 
That's what the Spirit does. Not goosebumps, not sweaty palms, not fluttering eyelids, not liver shivers, not voices in our head, but authentic life change and transformation through the power of the Scriptures. That's the work of the Spirit. So what do we do with this? I'm basically done. What, what do we do with this? What's, what's the encouragement here? Well, why this final thing about the Spirit? The encouragement is this. Listen very carefully. You struggle. And I struggle. Sanctification is hard. Sanctification is war. But John wants us to see that every blip and dot and dash of holiness and obedience in your life is a tangible manifestation of the supernatural. Of the work of the Spirit in your lives. No, you shouldn't sin. Yes, it's tragic when we do, but at the exact same time, every act of love or obedience in our lives, no matter how small it may be, reveals that a miracle has been performed. Not a miracle that you performed, but a miracle that it was performed in and through you, by the third person of the Trinity. That's the elevator speech of the Christian life. You believe in Christ. You love other people. You obey his word. And God alone gets all the glory. Let's pray. But Lord, we have seasons where we have felt like John Bunyan. But Lord, we are wearied over sin. We do long for your return even now. But Lord, every day I feel, we feel, Lord, we confess that our faith feels fragile. A slender, slender thread of strength. We're just hanging on. We're just hanging on. And we need your help, Lord. We need your sovereign, upholding reinforcement of your word to strengthen us, to help us persevere. Oh Lord, we understand that in one sense the Christian life is so simple. We believe, we get saved, we trust you, we obey, we repent when we don't. And yet in another sense, oh Lord, there are days when it feels so cloudy and complex, hard, challenging, uncertain, vague, ambiguous. Not that your word's ambiguous. We, we don't say that, Lord, but we're just saying that life is really messy on our end, and you know that. Because Christ, you yourself became human. And you were sinless and perfect, and yet you know what it's like to be human. And so, Lord, you can sympathize with our weaknesses, and you can deliver us from them. So we ask for that. We ask, O oh Lord, for bolder faith. We ask for stronger trust, greater dependence. We really need your help, and so we ask for it. I pray for this precious flock that they would grow in their dependence. I pray that they would grow in understanding the great poverty of their souls, that they are, that they are nothing more than spiritual cripples and beggars of grace, that all we are, Lord, as a human vat of need, 
and a human receptacle of weakness. That's it. So strengthen us, Lord, to live lives that bring you glory and put your Son on display. And it's in his mighty name we pray.